The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Just a warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence, torture, and sexual assault, which some people may find distressing. Hello. Hey, Sophia. How are you doing? It's Venetia. Hey. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you great. Have you got everything all set up on your end? Oh, you're breaking up. I hear, like, bits and pieces. Can you hear me at all or just... That's my producer, Venetia. After four COVID tests, three flights, wrangling approvals from two Chinese embassies and a lot of calls with a government contact, I finally made it back into China. Let's try this again. But now I'm stuck in government quarantine, and my internet signal has gone all wonky, just as I'm going to record a chat about getting into the country. A little bit suspicious, maybe. Coincidence? Right? Maybe. Finally, we get a good line. Um, so how are you doing, Sophia? How, how was it getting into China in the end? So when I landed, every person I came across was in a white hazmat suit. And, and then I had to cross the border. And that's where I came into even more trouble. Uh, I was held at the border for three hours. There were all these checks. It wasn't really clear what they were looking for. I was just standing there the whole time. They had my passport. And this one woman was looking up my details and then got a little flustered, then called over some of her colleagues. Eventually, there were maybe four or five people crowding over the same computer, very flustered, looking at me, looking at my passport, looking at me again. And then they pulled me aside to this holding pen. And what were you thinking at that point was going to happen or what was going through your mind? wasn't really sure they were going to let me through officially. I was also worried that maybe they'd keep my passport for much longer than an hour or two uh, and what that would mean. And I guess that probably an interrogation was going to happen. What kind of things did they actually ask you during the interrogation? So this, uh, this one guy eventually came over and he spoke to me in English. He asked me if I worked for the government or the military or law enforcement, and had I ever done that? My answer to all of that was, of course, no. He asked me if I had any political affiliation, if I was linked to a political party, what I thought of the U.S. government. And he also pressed this line about whether or not I had Chinese roots, you know, and uh, this always kind of worries me because they're trying to put me in this bucket of being a little bit more Chinese, not so foreign. So eventually, yeah, I got my passport back. And with that, I was then continued to be escorted through the airport. But touching down in China doesn't mean I can start reporting straight away. Far from it. Ahead of me lies 10 days of quarantine and an obstacle course of bureaucratic requirements. And I know I'm being monitored. In the three hours I was held at the border, I was told not to go to Xinjiang again, where more than a million Uyghurs have been locked up and tortured. Going out west, my code for the region, was my original plan for this episode. The main reason I came back to China. I wonder if they knew that, or if it was just a lucky guess. With Xi Jinping's repressive regime and overdrive, it was probably more dangerous than usual, especially if I had been specifically warned. These restrictions on journalists are why you'll hear from people outside of China in this episode. It's otherwise too risky for them to speak with me. From corruption to COVID, I'm going to take you inside the dark heart of Xi's China. 
This is How to Become a Dictator with me, Sophia Yan. Step two, order a crackdown. Let's pick up where we left off in the last episode. It's the end of 2012, and she is finally in power. He doesn't waste any time. Almost instantly, he kicks off a major purge. This is she talking just a month later about how important it is to clean up corruption. We must uphold the fighting of tigers and flies at the same time. Resolutely investigating law-breaking cases of leading officials. And also earnestly resolving the unhealthy tendencies and corruption problems which happen all around people. Tigers and flies, referring to officials both high and low. It quickly becomes one of Xi's most well-known slogans, a constant reminder that no one is safe. In 2013, his first full year in power, 31,000 people are put on trial for corruption and misconduct. Trials in China mean you're toast. 99.9% end in conviction. At first, the campaign is a success. It's hailed as a necessary reform something that will make China better. Because at this point, the Chinese Communist Party is rife with corruption. Scandals big and small keep emerging. But it quickly becomes clear that for Xi, it's also about getting rid of the competition. Two birds, one stone. That's Zhou Yongkang. He's confessing to committing unspecified crimes that hurt the party. He says he's sorry and that he won't appeal his sentence. In 2015, he gets jailed for life for alleged abuse of power, bribery, and passing on state secrets. As China's former security chief, he's the most powerful man in the country ever to be imprisoned. Maybe he really is guilty. Or maybe not. Either way, he has links with Xi's rivals, so he's a good one to get rid of. Televised confessions, like the one he gives, become so popular that a new TV series is launched, featuring fallen officials detailing their crimes. Gold bars, wads of cash, all confiscated. Millions tune in. Corruption is a problem to this day in China. I hear about it a lot. People tell me how they must give bribes to secure business licenses. Companies actually budget for this. Once at a press event, I was handed a little red envelope full of cash, a way to persuade me to write something positive. For the record, I didn't pocket it. But this happens to Chinese journalists all the time. Their way of saying, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. The issue has long been an obsession for Xi. Remember the professor, the anonymous source quoted in that leaked U.S. diplomatic cable? In 2009, he predicted this would be a focus for his old friend. Xi knows how very corrupt China is and is repulsed by the all-encompassing commercialization of Chinese society with its attendant nouveau riche, official corruption, loss of values, dignity, and self-respect, and such moral evils as drugs and prostitution, the professor stated. The professor speculated that if she were to become the party general secretary, he would likely aggressively attempt to address these evils 
perhaps at the expense of the new moneyed class. But there was something else. She also does not care at all about money and is not corrupt, the professor stated. She can afford to be incorruptible, the professor wryly noted, given that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. It is likely that she could, however, be corrupted by power. And that's what starts to happen. As she gets on a roll, more and more people end up in his crosshairs, people who have nothing to do with corruption. About 20 agents came to my traditional Beijing compound, three cameras with them, with lighting, everything. Among those targeted, Peter Dahlin, a Swedish human rights activist. Uh, presented themselves as being from the Ministry of State Security with detention warrants for myself and my girlfriend who was at my house at the time as we were saying goodbye. In January 2016, Peter is blindfolded, stuffed in a car and taken to a secret jail. So it was a pretty big operation, it seems, and uh, quite dramatic for me and my girlfriend, at least. Peter's extraordinary story gives a rare insight into the bowels of China's detention system, a terrifying place where possibly hundreds of thousands have disappeared without explanation. He started working in the country in 2007, but diplomats had begun warning him to leave after she came to power. Peter was the co-founder of a small NGO that trained lawyers and journalists. Work that had no place in Xi's China. We saw it on the ground in how after he came to power, we started seeing a very different working environment, even for something so innocent as simply training people, training lawyers in how to use law. But we did notice that in 2013, things started getting tougher and rougher and more colleagues would disappear often into the uh, relatively new system for disappearances, the RSDL system. His co-founder, Wang Chunzhang, becomes one of them. In 2015, Chunzhang is rounded up in dawn raids, along with more than 300 other lawyers and human rights defenders. Then, just hours before Peter is set to flee the country, the authorities come for him and his girlfriend, too. He ends up alone in a small, suicide-proof padded cell. Uh, I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. Even the, the toilet that's inside... The sink, everything has this thick leather sort of protective layer to it. And, you know, you don't get to keep a toothbrush or anything like that or a water bottle. It's always in the hands of the guards. So it's, I mean, it's designed for maximum control. And living in these conditions, of course, means that it, it does sort of break you down and put you into their control in a very complete way. China's network of secret detention centers. Peter is locked into the system for 23 days. Then out of nowhere, he pops up again on state TV. I have no complaints to make. Uh, I think my treatment has been fair. Uh, I've been given good food, uh, plenty of sleep, and uh, I have suffered no mistreatment uh, of any kind. I violated Chinese law through my activities here. Uh, I have caused harm to the Chinese government. I have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. And I am very sorry that this ever happened. A forced confession. How do we know? Because behind closed doors, Peter is being interrogated daily for up to 12 hours. They made him an offer. Cooperate and we'll free you and your girlfriend. He agreed. So the so-called journalist is given a copy of the same paper that I have. And 
we basically start acting out this two-man, two-person theater piece. Um, See, there's about a dozen people in the room behind me, all of them state security as this is going on. And one of them would act more or less like a director, producer, cut, redo this, say this, but look more somber, sit straighter, speak slower. He refused to label colleagues criminals as demanded. But the final product was aired anyway by China's state broadcaster as a propaganda win. Peter was lucky. He was released within weeks and deported back to Sweden. It was a different story for his Chinese co-founder, Chen Zheng. For three years, he was held incommunicado, at one point allegedly subjected to electric shock torture, and barred from contacting his family or a lawyer. Chen finally re-emerged during a sham trial in 2018 and was eventually released in 2020. She would no longer tolerate what little civil society had developed as the economy grew. China was becoming really scary under him, an escalating use of black jails and arbitrary detention. People gone, just like that, including those who thought they'd be safe, like one of China's richest women, Whitney Duan. Whitney vanished in 2017. Desmond Sham is her ex-husband. He told me their story over a pub lunch in Oxford, where he now lives. But uh, the biggest worry at the time was, how am I going to explain it to our son? You know, how do you explain to a seven, eight years old that why his mom has been disappeared by the state? Whitney and Desmond were the very definition of a power couple. They built an empire with sprawling business interests and amassed a fortune worth billions that they splashed on everything from fine art to philanthropic endeavors. But it also meant playing ball. Whitney cultivated ties with the wife of China's former number two and was often invited to tea inside Zhongnanhai, the party's central headquarters and where she has his office. You see that happening all around you, actually. You know, we were in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappeared by the state all the time. You just fall like, oh, because our association with two power, it's not going to happen to us. Well, you're wrong. Years ago, when Whitney was taken, there was no official explanation. Even today, no one knows where she is. Rumor has it that she remains under house arrest at the luxury hotel in Beijing that she built. Desmond thinks she might have been punished for her close links to two powerful political figures, collateral in Xi's ongoing push to sideline opponents. And in China context, as you can see with every politician when they go down, it's just not just them. It's their wife, it's their family, it's their children, everybody they're close with. That's why in China, the political movement always is a cleansing. It's never one person go down. It's a cleansing. He stayed silent for years, hoping Whitney would resurface. Eventually, he decided to write an expose. Just as it was about to be released in 2021, he got a call. It was Whitney telling him not to publish anything. After all those years, why was she suddenly allowed to make contact? Classic Beijing, weaponizing your family to get what they want. In this case, for Desmond to shut up. His book, Red Roulette, came out anyway, a blistering account of decades of wealth, corruption, and revenge in the party. Desmond had seen it all, but the growing crackdown under Xi 
was a warning sign. Everybody can be arrested. And I mean everybody, not a single exception. So when you arrest people in the dozens, in the hundreds, in the thousands, you say, okay, you know, they're bad apples. When you're arresting people in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, that's when you're like, whoa, whoa, this is going to be different. This is going to be different. It's not going to be the same game. Desmond was right. She wasn't playing the same game. And he hasn't stopped. In 2021, the government punished more than half a million officials, a new yearly record. But what about she himself? Is he clean? In 2012, just months before he became number one, Bloomberg News published a stunning investigation into the wealth of his family. They were millionaires, possibly billionaires. There was no direct link to prove wrongdoing on Xi's part. But Beijing reacted furiously. Bloomberg's website was blocked. So were visas for its journalists. I was a U.S. reporter for them at the time, talking to my editors about transferring to Beijing. That didn't happen, even though I had nothing to do with the article. It was my first brush with the state over a controversial topic. It would not be my last. More on that after the break. Hi, Venetia Rainey here. I'm the producer of How to Become a Dictator, which means I've spent months working with Sophia to delve into Xi Jinping's past and how it might affect China's future. My job is to make sure that her reporting on China makes it out of the country and into the telegraph. But it's dangerous and expensive. And that's where our subscribers come in. Without their contribution, we can't make shows like this one. So if you'd like to support what we're doing and to get unlimited access to a huge range of journalism on foreign affairs, politics, sport, business and more, go to telegraph.co.uk slash dictator, where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph. After that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk slash dictator, or click on the link in the episode description. I want to take you back 10 years to Kashgar, the cultural heart of Xinjiang. A melodious call to prayer. Chatter as hordes stream into Idka, the city's largest mosque. Organized chaos at the main bazaar. Thousands squeeze through, merchants peddling everything from melons to carpets. Music and laughter. Xinjiang was a major stop on the ancient Silk Road trading route and has been ruled by many different powers over the years. The Uyghurs, who have Turkic roots and are mostly Muslim, have lived in this remote region for centuries. Ringed by towering mountains in a vast desert, it has always been a colorful place. But today, all of that has changed. Many of the ancient Uyghur shrines have been destroyed by Beijing. Mosques, too, have been demolished. Some have been turned into bars, or worse, as I discovered in 2021. But the one you see behind me in the old city of Kashgar has been turned into a tourist toilet. China claims it's modernizing Xinjiang. 
But what's really happening is the horrific mass torture and suppression of the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. Covering this is a surefire way to get in trouble with the authorities. Don't touch me! Don't touch me! That's me in Xinjiang in 2021. I was assaulted by 30 men while trying to get to a shrine in the middle of the desert. They grabbed me everywhere, dragged me backward, ripped a microphone off my body, hit my face, made my lip bleed. Why are you guys hitting us? Xi's regime will stop at nothing to keep the truth from getting out. Trauma, sufferings, poverty, and now they turned this place into a hell, establishing the world's largest concentration camps, locking up millions of innocent Uyghurs. Aziz Issa Elkun is a Uyghur poet. He fled years ago after getting in trouble for making a political poster and now lives in the UK. He uses the Uyghur name for his homeland, Sharki Turkistan, East Turkestan. Xinjiang is the Chinese name. It means new frontier. We spoke in the Telegraph studio in London. They are occupier. They come to occupy our land. That's very black and white, very simple. In order to do that, they have to assimilate the Uyghurs. They have to make the Uyghurs forget their history, their cultural identity, everything. And they should be say, I'm a Chinese. That's what they try to achieve. The Atheist Communist Party has been trying to forcibly assimilate Uyghurs and other Muslims for decades, to pacify the region, to snuff out their language, customs, and religion. It's led to ethnic tensions and violence. But the crackdown has accelerated under Xi, who sees the region's unique identity and character as a risk to China's security and stability. This is from a speech he made when he visited in 2014 to launch his so-called Strike Hard campaign. We must take the crackdown on violent terrorist activities as the focus of the current struggle. The most long-term problem in Xinjiang is the issue of ethnic unity. We must build a steel great wall for people of all ethnic groups to jointly safeguard the unity of the motherland. Just as he was finishing his trip, a blast has occurred at a railway station in Wurumqi, the capital of China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Killing three and injuring dozens. It was the perfect excuse to ramp up restrictions. Suddenly, visiting a mosque, praying at home, refusing to drink alcohol, wearing a headscarf, growing a beard, using foreign messaging apps, all became signs of extremism. By 2017, things were really bad. People were getting snatched off the streets. Aziz again. The end of December 2017, since then, uh, I, I lost all communication with my mother. I don't have any more wishes. I just one wish I would be able to speak to my mother and to, to understand how she's living. That rights also taken away by that regime. Sometimes I just couldn't find the right word to express that inhumane side of the regime. Uh, not only me, millions of Uyghurs in exile, at home, we are, we are suffering. 
Having links to anything or anyone abroad, even if they're family, is enough to get you in trouble. The state sees it as subversive and dangerous. And children aren't exempt. Imran was just 11 when the Chinese police seized him from his family for 12 hours and interrogated him. I met him in Istanbul. He's now 16. Why did you and your sister go abroad? What did you do there? Who did you meet? They asked. The truth was, things were already bad enough back then that they were trying to emigrate. After the interrogation, they fled for good. Shortly afterwards, his parents were imprisoned for 25 years each for sending money abroad to him, even though his mom was sick. He can hardly bear to talk about it. China says people like Imran's parents are terrorists, that they're just rehabilitating them in re-education centers. But I've seen these places. They're fortified compounds, watchtowers, high walls, facial recognition cameras. I've also spoken to people who have been inside. They took my blood samples and other things. They said that because I've been abroad and watched TV, because I saw women who covered their hair and prayed, now I would have to be re-educated for a year. That's Gulzira Al-Khan. We met in Kazakhstan in early 2019, a little over a month after she fled China. I cried thinking about not being able to see my child or my father. Then they handcuffed me and made me stand and said that if I cried, my stay there would be longer. They would beat me or make me sit on an iron chair for 24 hours. One day, I did have to sit for a whole day and night on that chair while they beat me around the head. I had two fears. I was scared that I might die there, that they would take me somewhere and slaughter me, and I was scared that they would rape me. Our only crime is being Uyghur and Kazakh people without a homeland. Nearly two years detained by the Chinese state in a re-education camp and then forced to work full-time in a glove factory for the equivalent of 14 pounds a month. Gulzira thinks she was finally released after her husband, a Kazakh citizen, began campaigning for her freedom with the help of a rights group. When I met her in Kazakhstan, she was exhausted, angry, hysterical, scared, and sad. Who wouldn't be? On the same trip, I heard similar stories from Kairat Samarkand, a Muslim Kazakh also from Xinjiang. They put a hood over my head and brought me to a camp. They took my clothes, gave me some bedding, and took me to a cell. There were 15 people. I was the 16th one. I was tortured for being disobedient. They put iron clothes on me that were very tight. I couldn't move and was made to stand there for hours. That's how they tortured me. I was told that I should obey and learn the content from China's 19th Communist Party Congress. The food was generally just a piece of bread and water, sometimes rice or vegetables. But before eating, you had to say, long live Xi Jinping. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any food. And if you didn't say it, it meant you were against the government. On 14th February 2017, 
I tried to commit suicide. I rammed my head against the wall. There are so many heartbreaking stories, accounts of rape, forced abortions, even the murder of babies. China denies this, and the testimonies are almost impossible to verify. But there are hundreds of them, and they're all strikingly similar. Back in 2019, when I met these survivors, some wanted me to keep their identities anonymous. Gulzira said, They threatened me that if I ever talked about what I have witnessed or what was happening in China, that they would detain my family back home. They said they would find me wherever I was, bring me back to China and treat me bad again. People were too afraid to speak up. And that meant Xi's crackdown took place in the shadows. But Gulzira isn't scared to be named anymore. In fact, she's become very vocal for the cause. Stories like hers have pushed the international community to finally listen. On the basis of evidence heard in public, the tribunal is satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the PRC, by the imposition of measures to prevent births intended to destroy a significant part of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, as such, has committed genocide. That's from a British parliamentary tribunal in 2021 examining evidence of human rights abuses in Xinjiang. It echoed the U.S. government in saying the Chinese state was responsible for heinous crimes. In the last few years, the world has woken up to the horrors of what she is doing. While he could gloss over his anti-corruption campaign as merely domestic politicking, Mounting mass atrocities against an ethnic group were much harder to explain. Nations, including the U.S. and U.K., have announced sanctions. Even the U.N. is getting involved, although it stops short of calling it a genocide. But she's not stupid. He's taking note. He wants China to dominate on the world stage, not be a pariah state on the fringe like North Korea. So a major whitewashing campaign is underway. This summer, Xi made his first visit to Xinjiang since the crackdown. In pictures released to the world, Uyghurs are seen happily singing and dancing. State video montages with sycophantic soundtracks posted online show crowds lining the streets and applauding their great leader. Everyone is smiling. None of the women wear hijabs. All living in harmony, which she describes as the seeds of a pomegranate. State-approved Uyghur culture is all that's allowed here these days. It has been sanitized for the eyes of outsiders. Nothing more to see. Long gone are the moving traditional folk songs of musicians, such as Abdul Rahim Hayit. Uyghurs around the world know his music. He's kind of like their Bob Dylan. Strumming the dutar, a long-necked, two-stringed lute, he sings of a woman fighting to survive in the face of death. I ask, and the shackles? She says, it is on my wrist. I ask, 
Are you afraid? She says, "I am not." Abdul Rahim disappeared in 2017. His music was too political. Uyghur musicians are now being allowed to make music again, but only if they sing red-washed songs about ethnic unity. It's all part of the changing nature of the crackdown. She is making it harder for the international community to criticize. Re-education is now embedded in daily life via propaganda and in schools instead of in camps. Violators are thrown in state prisons, just ordinary criminals, says she. Security checkpoints have morphed into COVID checkpoints, so the suffering continues. This is an excerpt from a poem Aziz wrote called "Roses." The monster has left countless stains. It has pierced me with needles. But still, I call for justice for those who have suffered more. But my spirit is still fighting. My hope is still alive. Each time I find new courage, it brings the joy of a smile. For a long time, Xi's increasingly autocratic tendencies were only felt by certain groups: first, corrupt officials, then NGOs, rights activists, and business people, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and then Hong Kong. After brutally suppressing pro-democracy protests in 2019, Beijing imposed a draconian national security law on the former British colony. That's a whole other story, one I covered for the Telegraph in another podcast called Hong Kong Silenced, which is well worth a listen. My point is, most Chinese people could wave off the growing crackdown as something that wouldn't hit them, as long as they kept their heads down. Life for the vast majority was pretty okay, and there was little reason to think that would change. But then, tonight, the city of Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak. COVID erupted. Potential spread of a deadly new strain of coronavirus. Just a moment, but we begin tonight with the growing concern as the toll from that deadly coronavirus now grows, spreading from Wuhan. If you want to understand how important total control is to Xi, look no further than how he handled the coronavirus outbreak. December 2019, a few patients at Wuhan Central Hospital fall sick with a mysterious respiratory illness. Screenshots of medical records circulate. Records that show it's similar to SARS, a virus that crippled Asia in a pandemic nearly two decades ago. Ophthalmologist Dr. Li Wenliang sees them and warns his medical school friends. Quarantined in the emergency department. Everybody, please be careful. A friend replies, "How scary." Three days later, the police are at his door, accusing him of spreading rumors. They force him to sign a statement attesting to his illegal activity. He agrees, alarmed the police won't let him go otherwise. By early January, China is suppressing what it knows that the virus is highly infectious and deadly. 
Authorities say they've punished eight individuals for spreading false information, effectively intimidating most doctors into silence. Meanwhile, Wen Liang has been admitted to hospital. He posts online saying his parents are sick too and that he wants to get back to work. But he never does. In early February, he dies. Grief and anger explode across the country. He becomes a symbol, a folk hero, a real-life illustration of the consequences of Xi's China and a voice for the voiceless. This is from an interview he did that came out just after his death. I just wanted to tell my classmates to be careful. I didn't mean to cause panic. I think it is more important that people know the truth. Whether I get justice is not as important. A healthy society should not just have one voice. By March 2020, the rest of the world is frantically trying to control the virus. But Beijing is busy trying to control the narrative. Xi's propaganda machine moves swiftly to push conspiracies that the virus originated elsewhere, like the U.S. One theory blamed the U.S. military for infecting China. In Wuhan, censors delete pictures and videos of body bags and hospital chaos. Those who try to document what's really happening are harassed. As draconian lockdowns, enforced quarantine and mass testing bring infections under control, Xi declares victory in the people's war against coronavirus. The Wuhan model ends up being rolled out across China, dubbed zero COVID. At first, it did curb outbreaks, while much of the world buckled under the pandemic. Here, life was normal-ish, albeit with snap lockdowns and new rules, masks, contact tracing, temperature checks. But unlike elsewhere, the restrictions never went away. Instead, they multiplied. It became the perfect cover to track everybody's movements, to build an unprecedented mass surveillance dragnet. And it had a chilling effect. This zero-COVID policy with all these officials in big white hazmat suits is really restricting the public. Democracy activist Wei Jingsheng, you heard from him in the first episode. It's confining them to their homes. It's a way to train people to be nothing more than slaves. To make sure everyone is afraid to speak up and gets used to being obedient and following orders. If they don't allow you to do anything, then that's that. Whatever Xi Jinping says, people have to follow. Three years on, zero COVID continues to rule China. It's like time froze in 2020. Snap lockdowns ruin livelihoods. Draconian quarantine has led to deaths people are still being detained for spreading rumors. Xi has staked his name on this COVID policy, so he can't back down. But even strong man Xi can't control a virus. Chinese citizens are increasingly fed up and cracks are showing across the country. I'm fed up too. Ten days of super strict quarantine is starting to drive me a little bit crazy. All right, that's um, my second COVID test um, in quarantine already. I've done three already landing in China. I've been here for less than 24 hours. It's about 9.30 in the morning. Second day of quarantine, they're going to be 
banging on my door for a test. Here we go. I have a quarantine neighbor who's pretty upset. And we have 225 more hours to go. So today's day three of quarantine. Oh, here we go. Here's a COVID test. Now comes the swab. Ah. I should probably eat the one piece of lettuce we were given. I do need some vegetables. Anyway, time to eat. It's 11.25 a.m. I think this is lunch. Woohoo. Okay, so we have here a steam bun. Some sort of dehydrated green vegetable. I can't really tell what it is. Two pieces of a mystery meat. It looks like kind of... Mm, I can't tell what it is. Uh, a worker's come in and he's in a hazmat suit. He's in my room. He's fully covered and he's just swabbed the faucet in the sink in the bathroom. He's swabbing the table, my laptop, mouse trackpad. Because the swabs down my throat are clearly not enough. He's also swabbing the handle of the door. Okay, that was very bizarre. Feels a little bit like this digital dystopia. I mean, in, in a way I'm fighting this like algorithm, this like thing in the computer that says I have been to a place that I may have been exposed to COVID and because of that, I can't go back to my home. Anyway, that's me, day seven in quarantine. Okay, today's my last full day of quarantine. Just having a coffee, my last instant coffee, I hope. I can't wait. I can't wait to have a real coffee. <laughs> Not one that comes from a packet, but a proper coffee. Ah. So I've been in Qingdao. This is a city on the northeastern coast. And there are cases of COVID here. Right now, ahead of the party congress, Beijing... That's me on my last day in quarantine, ranting about all the hoops I have to jump through. You think COVID restrictions are bad for you? Trust me. It's worse here, and it isn't changing anytime soon. Having the right COVID health code rules your life. Anyway, it's, it's a reminder that the Chinese state loves to control minds and bodies. Since I've been in quarantine, I've filled out countless forms, and I've gotten numerous phone calls asking to report things like when I had my last period. I mean, honestly, why does anyone aside from my doctor need to know that? It's just so, it's so personal. Finally, it starts getting close to when they said we would be released. Okay, I'm literally waiting at the door. My bags are packed. It's at 4.30 p.m., I'm ready and right waiting now. to go. Um, okay, I hear some moving outside my door. This hopefully means that someone in a hazmat suit is going to come get me now. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to put my backpack on because I can't wait to be released. Oh, my gosh. Great, I can go. I am outside. <laughs> I have stepped outside. I think my tax is here. So I'm free. I just need to get through the next 12 hours without being flagged as a close contact. After that, I'll finally be able to go out and do my job, reporting. At least that's the plan. 
But as you're going to hear, nothing is that simple in Xi's China. You've been listening to How to Become a Dictator with me, Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Telegraph, reporting by me with additional research by Jenny Pan. The producers are Venetia Rainey and Yolaine Gofan. Sound design is by Giles Gear with original music by Elliot Lampett. The executive producer is Louisa Wells and the commissioning editor is Louis Emanuel. A special thanks to Dinara Salieva, Rune Steenberg, Lorenz Huber, and Sam Tarling. Follow this feed on your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.